If you ride your adventure bike off the pavement, which hopefully you do because that's why you bought an adventure bike, but especially if you ride it off-road, the chances are you're going to drop it. There's going to come a point where it's going to end up laying down in the dirt. Now, that probably won't be the last time. It'll happen again and again, and usually it's no big deal as long as you have your bike properly protected. Now, Teach McNeil is a world-renowned stunt rider. He does all things with his motorcycle that you would think were impossible, and he does it with the grace and style of... I don't know, ballroom dancer. Really, he makes it look easy, like anybody can do it, like you could take your bike out and do it. What does that have to do with bike protection? Well, when you do extreme things with motorcycles, it doesn't always work out, to say the least. In fact, Teach McNeil has dropped his bike a lot. All stunt riders do. So when we thought about protecting our bikes for adventure riding, we figured, who better to talk to than somebody who needs that bike protection and depends on the bike protection for their livelihood? And that's Teach McNeil, professional stunt rider. Also on this episode, we have another rider skills segment with Brett Tax. And Brett has a new way of using your vision that's going to make you a better rider. I'm Jim Martin. This is Adventure Rider Radio. Stay with us. Hi, I'm Sam Manicum. Nick Sanders. Terry Borden. Sandy Borden. Jack Borden. Graham Field. Austin Vince. Jason Spafford. Lisa Murray. David Peterson. Rachel. Ed Mark. Glenn Hickstead. Woody from Woody's Wheelworks. Vanna Smith. Gregory Frey. Dave Barr. Michelle Lampier. Tiff Nikos. Herbert Schwartz. Brett Tass. Zoe Cannell. Nathan Millwall. Walter Colbert. Crystal Bayer-Vajic. Lawrence Harkin. Jeremy Creaker. Simon Thomas. Lisa Thomas. Simon Pavey. Grant Johnson. Susan Johnson. Larry Price. Robert Wicks. Spencer Conway. Ted Simon. Elizabeth Martin. Lisa. Nita. And you're listening to Adventure Rider Radio. This episode is brought to you in part by Max BMW Motorcycles, serving adventure riders since 2002. 45,000 parts and accessories available online and ready to ship to your door at maxbmw.com. And you can sign up for their e-rider newsletter too. It's free. That's maxbmw.com. And Best Rest Products, home of Cycle Pump Tire Inflator, Tire and Bead Breaker, Easy Air Tire Gauge, and other adventure motorcycle gear. You know, whether you're on the road or off the road, you'll need a compact and reliable tire inflation method. The Cycle Pump runs right off your bike's electrical system and will inflate a flat tire in less than three minutes. Made in the USA, and get this, it comes with a lifetime warranty. It's the pump we use here at Adventure Rider Radio. Visit them at CyclePump.com. That's CyclePump.com. Green Chili Adventure Gear offers American-made, heavy-duty, innovative luggage systems for all types of motorcycles, tested in extreme weather and terrain to withstand the abuse of adventure riding. Green Chili Adventure Gear is also the exclusive USA distributor for Outback Motor Tech, a Canadian company that specializes in high-quality protection for motorcycles. Visit them at www.greenchiliadv.com, greenchiliadv.com. Well, not your typical intro music for Adventure Rider Radio, but I think it's suitable for what we're talking about. We're talking about stunt riding. Well, we're not really talking about stunt riding. We're talking about bike protection, but we are going to talk to a a stunt rider. And for me, when I picture stunt riding, I always picture it with that, you know, the rock music and things moving really fast and sort of like you see this this guy, it almost looks like a, a kid on the bike, really bouncing around on it, doing ridiculous things. But when you think about it, you realize that this is a person that has really advanced motorcycle skills, really advanced riding skills, because you can see what they're doing. And you think about what you're do, what you can do on your bike and you realize there's a huge gap in between. 
Well, Chris McNeil, which is referred to as Teach, um, because he's a teacher, he is a professional stunt rider. And um, during the day, he, I guess you could say he's a professional teacher, or, or at least a lot of days. He teaches Latin. He's the dean of student life at a school. He's the ninth grade head class advisor, and he's a varsity basketball coach as well. And on the weekends, and I guess on his days off and other times, he's doing stunt riding. But he is a full-time professional stunt rider. So as I said, when we talked about doing some sort of coverage on crash protection for our motorcycles or crash bars and things like that, we thought, well, why not talk to somebody who's using them all the time? I mean, a lot of people bolt them on their bikes and yeah, they get some use, but really talk to somebody who beats on them on a regular basis. And if you're a stunt rider, you're always trying to push your skills and you're trying to learn new things and you're dropping the bike all the time. The bike is continually getting slammed to the ground. Teach told me that if you go to one of the, the practice sessions, you'd be amazed at the, the abuse the bikes take. And that's a perfect place to go if you want to find out what's important about bike protection. Now, there's some interesting things that come up in our conversation about bike protection you think that something super solid, you know, just your strongest piece of equipment would be the best equipment. Well, that's not necessarily the case. So Teach, I mean, I don't know whether to call him Chris or Teach because he goes by both. I called him Chris. Uh, my name is Chris McNeil. Most people know me as Teach McNeil. I am a professional stunt rider for BMW Motorrad, and I also teach at a private school during the day, and I hail from the great state of Maine. How do you how do you get into stunt riding if you're a teacher, or how do you get into teaching if you're a stunt rider? I, I, I'm not seeing the connection. Well, that's one of the great things about uh, what I do in my school is that they really encourage you to pursue your passion, and it's a great message for kids to sort of not get, you know, boxed into a particular type of person. You know, you can work hard at school and be nerdy, but at the same time be athletic. You can be athletic and be artsy and whatnot. So it's a it actually goes hand in hand with sort of one of the messages of our school, but. I uh, got out of college and decided that I love kids and that's what I want to do with my life and is make a difference. And I always had a knack for speed and an interest in speed. And so I got my first crotch rocket, I don't know, my junior or senior year in college. And I very quickly started doing wheelies on back roads. And I can remember measuring my wheelie distance in telephone poles. And as I hooked up with people sort of with the same mindset in Boston, um, you know, it went from telephone poles to miles to highways and then the police started getting involved. And so I couldn't really be getting arrested on a Sunday night and go to school on a Monday. So I was uh, part of the movement that really pushed to take it off the streets and make an organized competition. And, you know, 10, 15 years later, we succeeded with a national championship. Um, and here I am, but it really just started from the idea of not wanting to get in trouble. And I've always been interested in, in challenging myself against the machine. And, you know, the motorcycle is an infinite challenge in and of itself. And so that's, that's what really drew me to wheelies. And that was just a way to express myself. What a great message to give the kids at the school. You know, normally you would see a teacher as just, well, that's what they do. They teach. And I think a lot of kids will rebel against that immediately. But sure. they probably connect with you much better than they will with just a, somebody who's, who's just being their teacher. Well, there's always that outside connection that lets you know that you're a real person and that you have other interests. And, you know, one of the key tenets of, the, of uh, my school is pursuing your passions. And I think that's important in life. I, I don't really believe in working. I believe in working hard. I don't really believe in working and doing something just for money. Um, and it's important to do what you love in life because otherwise you just spend your, spend your time doing a bunch of stuff you don't like. So what's the point in that really? 
So what are you doing? You're doing stunt riding on just on weekends and I guess throughout the summer. Yeah, it's mostly, uh, I don't know, a March to November deal. And at this point in my career, I can sort of pick and choose how much I want to work or how little I want to work. But it is mostly summers and weekends. And so I have a, a deal with my school. I actually, I, I left the school, oh, geez, in 08, 09 for three years and pursued the riding thing purely professionally in California. And really that was because it just came to a point where I wasn't able to you know, achieve my goals riding or achieve my goals in the classroom, doing both of them at the same time. And so I put the, the, you know, the red pen down, as they say, and pursued the riding. And when I came back, I found that I wasn't really getting the satisfaction out of riding um, as much as I, I, I expected I would. And I really enjoyed, you know, making a difference in, a, in the lives of kids and watching that play out over, you know, days, weeks, months, and years. And so when I came back, uh, I had I had made my name for myself really in the school they needed a latin teacher again and i made a deal with them where i i have a an extra set of unpaid days off to pursue my business interests in in riding and as long as i take care of my my duties at school that's never been an issue and you know to that point they've promoted me to the dean of student life and it just it really they really go hand in hand quite well and you know like you said allow me to connect with the kids and the better i can connect with them the more influence i have over them and the smoother things run at the school and you know the more i enjoy my job really so tell us what exactly is stunt riding for those who, who maybe have lived under a rock and don't really have an idea of what it is <laughs> Well, it started out really just with a bad boy image of just anything but racing. You know, the same thing in freestyle motocross. It was anything but racing and really stumbling your nose to the racers. Um, as a matter of fact, I got into road racing purely, you know, well, not purely, I guess. I did love to go fast. I still do love to go fast. But really to show the road racers that just because I was a quote-unquote stunt rider didn't mean I was a squid, didn't mean I didn't know how to ride my bike, didn't mean that I couldn't keep up with them. And that was a significantly motivating factor for me in entering my road race career. Um, but stunt riding is basically doing stupid things on motorcycles, manipulating the motorcycle in ways that you thought impossible. Um, it originated with the wheelie, of course, and then the burnout was, you know, soon to follow. And of course, after that, you get a little more skill and you develop the stoppy, which is really one of the most dangerous tricks because there's no safety net. You know, the wheelie has the rear brake as a safety net. The stoppy has nothing. So when you roll a stoppy on the front wheel too high, you go over and you're pretty much taking a trip to the hospital. And the other of the four major food groups would be acrobatics, which, you know, be standing on the tank doing a Christ air. Uh, riding backwards and that was really the beginnings of it and you know 15 or 20 years later uh, the kids out there are doing some just amazing things I mean I can the stuff that's going on right now I'm trying to learn a couple of the latest and greatest things but they were things that seven years ago myself and a couple of the older riders were just developing and talking about and it was it was theory it was like if we did this with a bike and you high side this way it would spin around and you know et cetera, et cetera, and here we are almost a decade later, and that's that's what's happening out there. The The ideas have sort of come to fruition, and it's it's pretty interesting to watch the progression. And what it's really about is bike control. I found that stunt riders have amazing control on two wheels, and they adapt easily to road racing, and in my case, uh, to adventure riding, which is really what I, I find myself doing on a daily basis nowadays. You do ride an adventure bike as well. Yeah, a couple... Geez, in 08 or 09, BMW really made a push with their F800 GS. When they gave me these bikes, 
I scoffed at him. I said, oh, what, what are these things? I, I can't stunt ride with this. Because at that point in time, I was waiting for the S1000RR to come out. And that was a, a huge motivating factor in even signing with BMW because I'd had support for, you know, free motorcycles weren't an issue for me. It was, it was less about the motorcycles and more about the brand and where they were going in the future. So with BMW making a push towards that younger market, um, with the S1000, that was really what I was afterwards. And I, I resisted the F800 GS for quite a while until I started riding one. And until I saw, um, how capable the motorcycle was and how much fun you could have with it. And, you know, I have, I have a, a decent enough motocross background, but I never really did any serious racing, but the 800 man and, you know, and as an extension, the 1200 GS just really sort of mashed all the worlds into one you know you get to explore you get to do wheelies uh, without really having johnny law you know chasing you down every two seconds and the things handle pretty darn well as well so you can put a knee down on the track and and that's really where the the love of that particular segment of motorcycling came from was just the fact that they did everything well well, one of the reasons I wanted to talk to you today, as you know, is to talk about crash protection and doing what you do for a living, or at least part of what you're doing for a living, you're dealing with a lot of crashes. Right, right. On, on a daily basis, I actually have a, a rule of thumb now that I'm, you know, in my late 30s, or as I would say, in my late 20s, maybe even late teens mentally. But I have a rule of thumb now that if I, I can't touch the ground three times. If I touch the ground three times on any given day, I'm done riding for the day. And that's mostly my body. But um, just to give you a little background, a little history, the crash cage has been out for pretty much as long as motorcycles have been around. But the stunt riding scene really, in my opinion, developed them and pushed them to where they could take huge hits. We, you know, We like to have a we have a term called a pancake crash, which is basically when the bike's standing straight up in a wheelie and it just falls straight over you know, to the ground and pancake itself in the ground. And, and 10 or 15 years ago, that would ruin your day. Even a, a slight drop might ruin your day and send you home. And we used to you know, ride our bikes to the, to the practice spot and then ride them home. And now it's a much more specified sport. So you know, people trailer or truck their bikes there. But the development of the crash cage has really come a long way from you know, case covers um, which in and of themselves have, have come a long way with this being lightweight and strong, but um, their ability to take a hit and to slide. You know, if you, when, you, when you think crash cage, for me, I immediately think um, frame sliders on the racetrack, and those are designed to help protect the bike in a small fall to help the bike slide a little bit. And the stunt riding scene really came about with the idea of preventing the huge hit, you know, the repeated hit. I mean, 15, 20, 30 times in a day, uh, you're dropping your bike flat in the ground and you need to be able to pick it up and keep riding again if you want to progress. And so that was the early stage of, of the design. And then as the riders got a little more advanced and the techniques refined, we wanted to go faster. And what the early cages lacked was uh, a clearance, a ground clearance and cornering. And so then the cages started becoming a little more sleek uh, while at the same time, giving you that sort of solid hit protection that we were looking for. And and now there's a plethora of choices out there, specifically in the stunt market, but also on the adventure side of things. And um, so it depends really what kind of riding you're going to do. Uh, that really determines what type of cage you want. You know, you're going to ride faster. You want something that's going to slide a little bit better. Or are you doing a little more technical trials type riding where you're going to be dropping the bike straight over and you need to take a little hit? And so as with everything, something has to fail. So no matter what you're doing, no matter what bike, no matter what brand, no matter what style crash cage you have, you're going to 
give and take to a certain degree because something will break eventually after enough hits. And that's really up to the consumer. So what they're really looking for. It's interesting you call it a crash cage because most people refer to them as crash bars. Is that a stunt term? Yeah, I think that really came from a stunt term because you know, because we're looking to make to put a cage around our bikes. Uh, much in the same, we refer to you know cars as cages. That's the idea that we were going for because we're throwing the bikes down the road repeatedly, and we need to protect not only the engine cases, but the clip-ons and the bodywork and the tail section and whatnot. So, I think that's really where the term "crash cage" from, whereas sort of crash bars protection, I, I view that more as a something to help you out in a tip over. Um, and, you know, in the stunt world, there's everything in between. So there's a, a frame slider, which is good for a, a small tip over at slow speeds. And if you want to go a little faster, you have what we call a race rail, which is just when the end of the frame slider has a metal tube that extends rearward towards the uh, usually mounts in the frame back where the motor back with the motor mounts to the frame. So it's basically um, parallel to the ground going from the frame slider, that engine mount, all the way back to where the frame would mount, uh, the motor would mount to the frame, excuse me. And so that was um, the in-between stage. But with the crash cage, we're really looking to be able to just destroy the bikes. And if you, if I took you to the practice lot and showed you some of these kids who were just learning and starting, you would, you would be appalled at <laughs> the abuse that these bikes were taking and, um, and that has really helped progress the sport because now when we have a drop, you're not fixing anything right away for the most part. And you're, you're not so worried about dropping the bike, which A, allows you to go over some things and push the limits a little bit more. And B, allows you, really keeps the rider safe because we're not trying to save the motorcycle. I mean, I've been hurt a number of times just trying to not let the bike fall down so hard because mm -hmm. I didn't want to have to fix it. And so I think that's a, a pretty big distinction. Um, you know, I think crash bars, I don't think that most guys on the adventure circuit are looking to throw their bike down the road. I think they're looking to protect themselves in a tip over or, or, you know, or slower speed crashes. And if you're looking to protect it by throwing it down the road, you probably should, be, should become a stunt rider and, <laughs> and trade in the adventure bike for, for something else. But that's the crossover I see that, that is really applicable here is the fact that you are dropping your bike over and over again. You need protection on it um, so that you're not picking up pieces every time that it happens. And certainly with adventure riding, we're dropping our bikes occasionally, and, and I would hope that's only occasionally for most people. And you just want to make sure that you have adequate protection. So, And, and because you are a stunt rider and an adventure rider, I mean, there's a good mix in there. And I, I think you're going to have a, a really good point of view for what we're about to talk about. Let's start off with what do you think is the minimum protection for the motorcycle as far as what we need? Because we've got skid plates and we've got handlebar protectors and crash bars. What's the minimum we should have as an adventure rider? Well, it depends if you're going to be, you know, going off-road in any serious fashion or not. Um, I always have the first three things that I put on every adventure bike I have would be a crash cage would be number one because I'm going to, I'm definitely going to push the limits of the motorcycle and on the dirt you know, the traction is not always there. And even when you think it's there, it's often less than you think. So crash cage for me is number one. Um, and these are all very close. I mean, I, I would do all three at once. And then obviously you've got to have a skid plate because you've got to protect the engine and the bottom of the engine, you know, rocks and logs and whatnot. And then I'm always putting bark busters on. You, you, to me, those three things make the bike pretty, pretty tough to really abuse. And um, you said it best. You're looking to tip over once in a while and pick the bike up and keep on going, especially when you're, 
you know, you're really adventuring and you're out in that wilderness, you can't afford to to tip over and have a foot peg break or have a handlebar break or, or break a case cover. So those three items are really the minimum for me. And, and it, you know, we could talk about what we do after that to make our bikes a little stronger and tougher. But without those three things, I am riding a heck of a lot more conservative uh, than I would be with those items. Let's start with bark busters or, or handlebar guards. First of all, what are they doing for us? Well, besides just knocking uh, branches away from you as you're riding, allowing you to use the clutch in the in the front brake uh, without interference, uh, they're really, I prefer the metal type, whether they're bark brushes, whatever brand they are is really irrelevant, but there's really two styles. Some that's really going to just block the wind and maybe knock some light branches away. And then I prefer the the metal wraparound ones that, you know, hook onto the the middle of the handlebar and wrap all the way around in front of the levers to the to the bar end, because they just offer significantly more protection and strength. Not only when you're in the woods and you know you're you're knocking through trees and tight areas, but also when you tip over. It just gives a little more rigidity to the handlebar setup and allows that almost to act um, as an impact point without really damaging anything. Um, and and I, I won't ride in the woods without them, to be frank. I've, I've broken fingers before, broken knuckles, and just really banged myself up from hitting trees, uh, whether it's branches or actual trees themselves. So to, for me, I, I am pretty serious about putting the full-on protection up on those handlebars. But they're also taking the, the brunt of the fall, aren't they, when you drop it down, when the bars hit the ground. They're the ones that, they're the part of the, uh, the bar that's, that's touching first. They're the ones that get all ground up and then gravel. Yeah, that that's true, and that's why again why I prefer the 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 heavier duty styles. I mean, some of these bikes come stock with hand guards, but they're just that they're hand guards. They're not really protecting anything. They might protect your hand, but they're not doing anything to protect the the integrity of the motorcycle. So when you do tip over, they often they're plastic, they break, and you you're running into you know damaging the levers, damaging the bar ends, and which makes it all more easy to, to bend the bars. So you are right. They do take the brunt of the fall, um, and, and that really combined with the crash cage are the two things uh, that are hitting first and taking the most brunt. The skid plate, of course, that's just you know underneath. That's not really affected in a crash. Um, and again, depending upon the style of cage that you have or, or crash protection that you have, those barns become, you know, more or less important. You know, for example, on the 1200GH of the boxer motor, the barns aren't usually the first to hit. The, the you know, the engine guard is the first to hit. But on the mm. F800, uh, the barns or the or the, the bark busters, the hand guards are the first things to hit and the cage is actually secondary. You were saying about the, you, you obviously like the metal ones and it only makes sense. The plastic ones that come with the, the bikes uh, sometimes when they're new are really, they're just there for wind deflection, bug deflection. You know, that's right, about it. Right. Some of them are really flimsy as well. And, yeah. and I, I don't think they were ever designed for that, you know, that no, to be fair. But so, so the metal ones, are there any tips that you would give um, maybe the precautionary um, measures for someone buying one? What should they be looking for? Well, besides crash protection, you want to make sure that they're doing the job that those stock jobbies are doing that you were t- mentioned earlier. You, you want to make sure that they have enough wind protection, which is nice when you're traveling distance uh, on cold. You can get them just the metal piece, but that's obviously not giving you much wind protection or bug protection or small branch protection. So you want to make sure that they're sturdy, that they mount to your bike. I know there's um, some brands out there that are not bike specific, and so you can run into some problems with those. 
Um, I always will buy a brand that is specific to the motorcycle because they've taken into account the controls, including the levers, including the mirrors, including, you know, the blinker, the blinker modules and whatnot. So you really want to buy something that's, that's motorcycle model and brand specific, and then has the adequate protection and strength combined with that wind slash bug protection. It really gives you everything you're looking for. And I don't know that there's a whole heck of a lot of choice out there for that. Um, they're probably a little more expensive, but with most things I've found, especially motorcycle related, you get what you pay for. So it's worth a couple of extra bucks to get, you know, in your mind what, what the best product is out there to save yourself money, time down and damage in the long run. Yeah, because something like this will end up or could end up saving you or costing you money down the road. I mean, if you if you just decide to stick with your plastic ones, you go down and you break a, uh, a brake lever off or or uh, a bracket or your whatever. I mean, that can end up just sort of adding to the cost that you should have put into the Barkbuster to begin with. Yeah, exactly. And there's a, I mean, there's we're a, saying Barkbuster too. Sorry, Chris, we're we're saying Barkbuster. That's a brand name. Um, they're really handlebar guards or or hand guards, really, aren't they? Right. I mean, I, I say Barkbuster because I think that just happens to be probably one of the, the more dominant names. And, sure. you know, it's like Band-Aid, like Band-Aid yeah. is a brand and Band-Aid is a thing. So when I'm talking Barkbusters, um, I do have the brand Barkbusters on a couple of my bikes, but I also have other stuff out there. So Barkbusters for me is the style of handguard versus, you know, like what you talked about, something, some of the plastic stuff that just comes on the factory bikes. Because those, you know, one fall and I guarantee those break. So you really need something as heavy duty as possible. And I would say just sort of branching off topic here that when you're dealing with protection, I mean, just think about it. The easiest example I always give people is headlight protection. So the headlight buckets, you know, anywhere from 600 to $1,000 and a headlight guard is usually less than a couple hundred. So it only takes one rock to really break a headlight and you're out 600 bucks. You know, so you a little more uh, upfront investment can often save you a lot of money down the road as well as for me and I think most adventure riders, just the downtime, the ability to keep riding their motorcycle. Nobody wants to miss time on their bike. I was when you're saying uh, the the the, um, the damage to the headlight might be six hundred to thousand dollars. That would probably convert you at that point. <laughs> so you're gonna you're gonna yeah. buy the new headlight and then you're gonna buy the protection for it afterwards anyway. You make that mistake one time. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. Okay, well let, let's talk about skid plates. Sure. What do you look for in a skid plate? Well, again, a lot of it depends on what type of riding you're gonna do. I look for the heaviest duty skid plate I can get. Um, if we were doing motocross, I would want something that was probably a little less heavy duty, a little light. But weight, while it is a concern on an adventure bike, you get, let's be realistic. We're loading these things up with tents and gear and water and all the farkles that you could probably imagine. So weight is not the primary objective here. Protection is the primary objective, um, and you can look at protection in a couple of ways. Uh, I look at it really in two, two different angles. Number one, can I put the thing on a rock or over a log and will it take sort of the weight and the hit uh, from the underside of the bike? You know, and the bikes are weighing, you know, 450, 500, you know, even more than that. So they're heavy and they need to withstand a lot of weight down there. And when you start getting into rocks, is, is the aluminum thin? I mean, for me, it's, it's got to be aluminum. You're not going to go plastic because plastic is going to shatter. Uh, upon impact, most likely, or not take quite as much abuse as a rock, I'm sorry, against a rock as an aluminum skid plate would take. So for me, that's a non-issue. Um, the second thing I'm looking for is protection from damage um, caused by rocks being kicked up from the front tire. And I think this is an area that people don't often think of when they're, when they're, when they're talking skid plates. And 
most adventure riders aren't really getting nasty and probably hopping over logs and, you know, scraping the bottom of their bike on rocks, although it's quite possible. Most, you know, the, the idea of adventure riding is that we can go places that cars can't go. We go places that regular motorcycles can't go. But a lot of that involves, you know, fire roads, uh, gravel roads and whatnot. So you're getting a lot of kick up from that front, that front wheel, especially if you have a knobby up there. So keeping that um, protected that front of that engine, you know, on the G- GS 800, it's the, uh, it's the oil filter up there. So avoiding damaging that, avoiding damaging the engine cases is a pretty high priority in my mind for adventure riding. So you want something that protects the front and even the sides of the bottom of the motor, not just the bottom of it. So you're saying heavy duty design, like a, a really well, uh, welded and produced, uh, piece that, um, I mean, I guess you sort of have to look at this and have some sort of idea of how things are. I guess comparing them might be the best, but what I was going to ask about is mounting points. Mounting points have to make a big difference. Yeah, they do, but I I don't know that it's it's mounting points as as much as it is how it's mounted. Um, And what I mean by that is if it's a solid mount, you know, you're just bolting into the bottom of the motor – you're this again it's sort of related to the crash gauge you're something is going to give and so you want the add-on piece to give not the actual motorcycle to give so if you're just mounting it you know metal on metal onto your your engine you're kind of asking for trouble because yeah it's going to protect it from mud or kicked up rocks but if it takes a hit that crash that that skid plate's not really going to deflect that energy that's going into the hit. It's going to just pass through to the crash cage and into the motor or you know wherever else it's mounted. So it's important that there's something between the actual mount to the motor because that's in my my experience that's where most of them mount to some some portion of the motor. It's important that there's some energy absorption between the actual engine and the crash cage. And for some designs, that's a rubber grommet. Right, which is fine. For other designs, that is just a, you know, it's not mounted directly in the sense uh, that it's bolted straight through. Which usually, you know, the crash cage. I'm sorry, the skid plate might be bolted to a a tab, which is bolted to the engine. Which again, the tab sort of allows the the energy of a hit to be absorbed rather than the engine taking all the hit. So for me, it's less about where and more about how. A lot like they're designing cars, you know, so that they collapse on purpose, you know, if they get into an accident to absorb the energy, like you're saying, rather than transmit that right through to the engine and end up smashing your engine block. Yeah, no, you, you, with a smashing, with the crack engine blocking and, and oil, oil leaking everywhere, you're done. You're, not only is your day done, you're probably your week and perhaps your month is done. You might be shopping for a new motorcycle. So, again, I, I, in my experience, there's no doubt we're going down. There's no doubt things are going to get damaged if you do any sort of uh, off-road riding. It's it goes with the territory, and so you got to be willing to a spend the money up front to protect your your investment of your motorcycle, and b just accept it as fact that these things are going to get damaged, and they're designed in many ways to get damaged, and that's what you want. You want to damage the bolt-on parts, not damage the motorcycle itself. And to your point there, Chris, about, about the skid plate, about it being mounted so that it's absorbing energy when you hit something, the skid plate is not like a skid plate you might find on a tank or something like that, is it? It's it's really, it's a bit of protection, but you certainly don't want to go banging this thing off of rocks if you can help it at all. No, you want to avoid that. <laughs> I mean, I, I think you want to avoid banging your bike off rocks no matter what. Um, but it, it, without a doubt, it happens, especially, you know, sometimes when you're crossing streams or you're getting some rock gardens and whatnot, and they will take a hit, but you'll also see, 
that they'll be gouged up and they'll be dented and dinged up. And that's how you know they did their job. And so, um, you know, I, I ran a particular skid plate on my F800GS that I used as a stunt bike. And people would always marvel because, you know, when I'm wheeling the bike, you can see the skid plate. And they always marvel at how beat up it is. And that was really just mild off-road riding because I had I had motard wheels on it and I was using it in my stunt shows. But it shows how much damage that would have been inflicted on the motor if you hadn't had that skid plate. So again, you are right there, really like a like a, cr- a crumple zone in a sense. You really don't want to be trying to grind, you know, grind the bike as if it were you know a skid plate on a motocross bike or even a trials bike because those bikes weigh a heck of a lot less you know they're not you can't really grind 500 pounds on anything and expect it to come away unscathed yeah and and like if you had compared it to a skid plate on a four-wheel drive for instance a four-wheel drive it'll mount to the frame and it's you know quite acceptable to drag it across something that's really not going to hurt anything with within reason but but these aren't quite like that um, they also the the aluminum being that it's um, somewhat malleable will also help absorb some of the energy. So it's, I, I don't know. Are there any um, steel skid plates out there? Is anyone making those? Do you know of any? I don't. I don't know of any. I don't know that you want one. I think that no. That I can't weight, see anyone doing that. Yeah, that weight alone would be probably not desirable. But really, more importantly, would be the idea that that steel would be so strong that it's just going to pass that energy onto the bike and you want the energy to be absorbed when you crash you don't want the bike taking the energy so onto the crash bars now or cage as you call it this would be your number one thing right this is the first thing you're going to look at well you have to put it on because if you don't you're i mean on a, on a stunt bike in particular if you don't you you can't drop the bike you're going to you know, have a broken case cover immediately um, on an adventure bike, depending upon what you're dealing with, you're pretty much guaranteed if without a cage to have broken plastics at a minimum. Uh, there's a potential depending upon the, the brand and the model of having broken case covers or engine covers. Um, and there's always, of course, the potential of bending your bars, which is less of an issue because, you know, you can get out of, out of Dodge with bent bars, but you know, plastics are expensive and you want to protect that investment. So for me, that is the number one thing that I do on a motorcycle. Okay, so some people will ask, why is it dirt bikes don't have crash bars? Well, I think you're dealing with a lot less weight, number one, and you're riding in soft dirt, number two, and the design of the plastics is such that they're not going to crack and break. It's it's a lot simpler of a machine. You know, there's no, there's very few electronics. Uh, there's no ABS brake systems on there. There's no blinkers. There's typically no headlights. And so you really, it's apples and oranges when it comes to to dirt bikes and adventure bikes. But that being said, all of my dirt bikes that I ride off-road all have handguards on them and bark busters because what hits the ground first on a dirt bike? The bars. Um, so they're not indestructible, but they're just, they're, they're a lot tougher. And they're not designed to be able to go, you know, 80 or 90 or 130 on the roads and, and go miles upon miles. So it's, it's, it's apples and oranges. So to make that comparison, uh, you're really, you're not going to make an effective comparison if you're comparing a dirt bike to an adventure bike. And, and on top of that, they're quite narrow too in comparison, yes, aren't they? Yeah, so yeah, that, that goes back to what I was saying a second ago about the bars definitely hitting first. Whereas an adventure bike... Again, depending upon the model and the brand, the bars could hit early on uh, in the crash. But typically, you're always going to hit the side of the bike because they're you know like they're wider, especially a boxer motor. I mean, those things—that's the first thing that's hitting the ground. And you know, I, I ride BMWs, so I can speak mostly to that. But if you look at KTM's or Triumphs, I mean, that Triumph Tiger—if you tip that thing over, you are going to 
crack up the fairings and those the ABS plastic, the type of plastic that they use is not designed really to bend and take a hit. Um, unlike the type of, you know, unlike the dirt bike plastic, which you can pretty much bend in half and it might leave a little, you know, white crease in it, but it's not going to shatter. And even the mounting points, a lot of times on the, on dirt bikes, they tend to have very few mounting points. You know, the, the plastic might be mounted with a screw or two at the front and that's it. Whereas the adventure bikes tends to mount everything. So it's a solid uh, thing to, to help with wind deflection. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, they're, they're, they're different purposes. So the, the bodywork itself is going to serve different purposes. And like you said, I mean, that's a great point. Part of the purpose of the bodywork on an adventure bike is when you're doing long miles, you don't want to be sitting in that wind for hours on end. It's not enjoyable. So crash bars, one of the first things I guess we got to talk about is coverage for them because there's a whole load, as you said before, of crash bars out there, every configuration you can imagine. Um, what kind of protection do we need with this? What I'm looking for personally on a crash bike is something that's going to take a hit. First and foremost, I want it to be tough. It's got to be able to be dropped on its side, you know, a handful of times before anything really gets damaged. Because I know that when I'm out in the willy wax and doing some technical riding, that I'm going to tip over. The bike weighs 450, 500 pounds. And, you know, even, even being a professional, you know, rider, you lose your balance sometimes because the grounds are always changing. So I'm looking first and foremost for something that's going to take a hit. The second thing and right behind it is really ergonomics. Uh, I can't have the, the crash cage getting in the way of my knees or my ankles or my shins or um, really even even my movements with the handlebars. And to that point, a 6'5 guy probably wouldn't like my bike because his knees right now would probably be just into the crash cage that I have on my bike. But at 5'9, you know, average male McNeil, the, the typical, you know, white 5'9, 165, that's me. That the crash cage I have on my bike fits me perfectly. So that sort of big contact protection, but at the same time not getting in my way is my first and my those are my first two priorities and they really are right behind each other. you know How are you figuring out what is a, a strong bar though when you're looking at them on the shelf? Well, there's a couple of things going on. you, you look at the, the width of the tubing. Uh, most manufacturers will tell you what kind of uh, materials they're using, and so you want strong material. Um, I like a thicker versus a thinner bar. And if you just looked at a handful of them, you'd see that I mean the diameter might be you know an inch all the way down to even a half inch. And so I tend to go for something a little more a little more bulky, but a little stronger. Um, the other key point here, and this is related to what we were talking about with skid plates, is where are the mounting points? You know, is it mounting at a point where it's going to send the energy of the crash directly into the frame, directly into the motor? Or is it mounted at a point that it's going to absorb uh, some of that energy and bend? Because I want the bars to bend, but I don't want them to bend like butter. You know, they, it's, a, it's a fine line between being too rigid and too soft. And, and to that point, on my S1000RR, I had a cage on there, geez, a couple of years ago that was just strong as an ox. I mean, I could throw the thing down. The cage never gave, it never bent, it never had to replace it. What I ended up having to do was replace the frame because it, it cracked the frame. And so now I've gone with a little less toughness on the cage. And if you talk to some of, you know, some of the stunt cage manufacturers, the most popular one would be this brand called Freestyle Ingenuity, and they're popular because they're on eBay and they're on Amazon and whatnot. And 
he always talks about that exact sort of give and take of of toughness and durability versus giving so that the cage breaks or bends or gives and not the frame or the motor mount of the, of the motorcycle. So really you don't want something in my mind that bolts directly to the bike. Uh, that being said, if it's a real sleek cage and it's not sticking out as much, you can have something that has a little bit more of a direct bolt. And when I mean a direct bolt, I mean, you know, the cage, you, you throw one bolt through the hole in the cage into, into the motor mount, wherever it's mounting. Um, when I mean sort of an indirect mount, there might be a tab, you know, whether it's an inch long or, or two inches long. And, and a lot of times the bodywork dictates that. You know, if you wanted, if, if you could, if manufacturers could put the cage on the bike without the bodywork, the cage designs would be slightly different. Um, again, you know, I'll think back to just the S1000RR because it's, it's easy, it's easy to talk about that with all the bodywork on it is you don't want to have to drill the bodywork to put a cage on. So what manufacturers often do is their design incorporates um, some tabs and whatnot, which what those tabs do is they just allow you to, to hook the cage into the bike but the pressure point or the impact point um, on the cage is not exactly on that that point where it's bolted to the bike. It's you know an inch or two inches down down the way, depending upon how long that tab is. And again, there's a balance there. A three or four or five inch tab, which I don't even know if that exists, probably a, a three, three and a half inch sort of extension would exist. But that's doing two things. It's putting leverage on the bike and it's making a little bit it a little bit weaker. So uh, again, there's a lot of variables that you have to look at. And the best bet is to really see these see these things in person on somebody else's bike and to get feedback of guys who are doing the types of riding that you're doing, who are on a similar bike as you are, and who have experience uh, with that crash cage. So I think it looks real simple. Oh, give me a crash cage. But when it comes right down to it, it's not that simple. You brought up some excellent points. I mean, when you're saying about a crash cage that is too rigid, um, that can appear to be the ultimate, like you said, the ultimate cage. You're dropping it and it does nothing all the time, but then you end up with massive damage on your frame. So it's important to understand that some of these tabs that we look at and you, and you think, well, why would they weld this weak little thing in there? Like it looks like it weakens the design. That very well may be the reason for it. Like you're saying, it's, it's there to absorb impact. So I, I guess part of this would be really educating yourself with it and possibly contacting the manufacturer or doing your, your due diligence, reading up on it and see why is it designed this way? I guess if they're not talking about energy absorption, then there might be a problem with the design. I, I think you're right. I think in today's world, doing due diligence is not, you know, maybe as hard as it was, you know, even five or 10 years ago. I mean, there's a plethora of information out there. You can easily find somebody unless the company is brand new and, you know, in which case there's a little buyer beware there. But you can easily find somebody who's tried uh, that cage on your motorcycle. I mean, there's just not that many motorcycle brands and, and variables out there to, to, to really use that as an excuse to say, oh, I didn't know. Yeah, that's a very good point. The internet makes everything at our fingers now, and it's just so easy to spend some time looking this stuff over. We definitely, absolutely, I'm sure you're going to agree, we should not be shopping on price. No, I mean, you get what you pay for, without a doubt. Um, and the cheapest I've found, and I think we can all have experiences like this, the cheapest is very rarely the best. Um, unless you, you know, but call it what it is. You get something cheap and it might not last that long. And so you're going to replace it more often. And, it, and for some people, that's the trade-off. You know, they'd rather just, they don't think they're going to own the bike that much or do that much, you know, 
type of riding or whatnot. And so maybe the cheap way is the best for them. But I've found in my experience that it's best to get something that's going to do what you want it to do and worry about the price later. And of course, you know, price point does come into play and, and none of us are rich out here. We're all, we're all, you know, all working hard, but you know, spend the extra couple bucks now to buy the cage that's going to best suit your needs, um, and it'll save you, you know, money in the long run. It's it's a, it's a, it's an investment in your motorcycle, and you're dropping, you know, anywhere from ten to, geez, even twenty five thousand dollars for these motorcycles. So a couple hundred dollars here and there, which does add up, is really a smart investment. Um, you know, you want to make your bike last, and you want it to, to work for as long as it can through as many obstacles and, uh, you know, and challenges. As you can, and you know the one thing I didn't mention is looks always come into play, and you know the eye of the beholder is is an important thing. That's why people buy one brand over another in terms of you know motorcycles, for instance. Like like these these super bikes, I keep on coming back to that because it's I think it's applicable. But these super bikes out there, for the most part, minus some electronics and safety, they're six one half dozen the other. So for the average guy, a Suzuki versus a Yamaha versus whatever is really going to do everything that it can do performance-wise. So it comes down to looks and, br- and brand uh, reputation a lot of times. And, you know, from my perspective, that's where BMW sort of comes out on top is is the the quality of the bike, of course. Um, but, the, but the looks are there too. So that said, looks do play a part and you have to balance that as part of the rest of the equation with, you know, protection, What's how much of a hit's it going to take, uh, ergonomics, does it fit the bike? Uh, you know, because what you don't want you know, again, going back to just leverage points and ergonomics, you don't want something that sticks so far out past the bodywork in the cage that it becomes a, a point of leverage. Um, and again, if it sticks too far out, that can oftentimes in a slide hook on things and cause the bike to flip over. So you want something that is, you know, ergonomically correct for the motorcycle, ergonomically correct for the rider while offering adequate protection for the type of riding you're going to be doing. Um, and that's something that's not going to be too rigid that it, it, it causes ultimate damage to the motorcycle. So there's really a lot of variables. And like you said, doing your due diligence is really the best way to be satisfied with your purchase. Chris, is there anything we've left out, do you think, as far as protecting your bike for a crash? Um, for a crash? Well, I'm, I'm not talking street crash, of course. Yeah, so no, I'm, I'm talking about, really, ATV. I think you described it best by saying tip over because really that's what we're dealing with most of the right, time, isn't it? Right. You know, you move into a spot, you slow down too much, you dab a foot and the next thing you know, you're, you're tipping over. Um, so the, the one thing I might add is I've found it pretty useful for on adventure bikes as well for some fork and oftentimes swing arm bobbins, uh, you know, just to go go on the end of the fork and whatnot, because we do have some tip overs and it, it, it low speed crashes where you are sliding a little bit. Um, when you're talking about ADV bikes, it's not just crashing on on off road. I guess is what I'm getting at. And so, I've found there's been a few instances where I've had slow speed crashes on the street, even just tip overs at you know four or five miles an hour. And forks are an expensive item, and so it's a pretty cheap way to avoid scratches on the bottom of your forks and on your swing arm. Is you just have those those little crash bobbins. Explain what a, a bobbin is. So a bobbin is basically a f- uh, frame slider for the the axle, the end of the axle on the front and or the rear. Um, for me in particular, I found that the front one is pretty useful because other than the bars, the only thing preventing really, the, you know, 
what's going to hit the ground in a fall? It's like chances are the tires are going to hit the ground, the case cover, the bars, and sometimes the plastic. But the bottom of the forks, you often find those all scratched up in a slow-speed crash. So for me, they're a relatively cheap item, and it's nice to when you tip over not to damage your $1,000 forks. And you're, they're not saving you catastrophic damage. They're saving you um, really looks damage, you know, exterior looks, you know, saving some scratches versus whereas, you know, bark busters um, or a crash cage or a skid plate is saving you the type of damage that's going to keep you from riding, which is far more important than cosmetic damage. That was the word I was looking for is cosmetic. I was struggling for the for the terminology there. I knew what you were going for, but I just figured I'd let you say it. <laughs> you let me struggle. Well, no, I wasn't letting you struggle either. It came out wrong. I was, I was just letting you say it, you know, letting you say yeah. your piece. Often you interrupt someone and they lose what they were saying. Yeah. Chris, if somebody wants to see what you do with your motorcycles, where can they go? Um, in this day and age, the website teachtricks.com is not updated that much. So you can find me at Teach McNeil. That's T E A C H, like a teach, because I'm a teacher, and M C N E I L. So Teach McNeil is where you'll find me on Instagram and Facebook. Um, and I'm trying to, I'm working hard to, to update the thing and throw up pictures and short little videos and some behind the scenes stuff every, every day or three. So that's really a great way to check out some cool riding, some cool picks, but also to stay in contact with me. I, I love to teach. Um, sort of, you know, the next direction in life after the stunts and over is going to be to teach the riding, whether it's off-road or slow speed stuff. And I've really been making a concerted effort to, to do some demonstrations, do some lectures, and just do some hands-on learning with some guys. So I, I love to hear from my fans and my followers, and I love to interact, and I love to teach. And don't be afraid to reach out to me and say hello and ask me questions. And you know, just generally welcome to my world of riding. It's, it's a pretty cool one. Well, Chris, teach. It was nice to meet you and great to sit down and have this talk. Thank you very much. Likewise. Thanks for having me. I, uh, hope, I hope everybody took something away from this, and we'll see you out there on the trails. And that was Teach McNeil or Chris McNeil. If you're going to look him up on the internet, you can, uh, it's probably best rather to search for Teach McNeil. He's got a website called teachtricks.com, but he doesn't keep it up to date, he said. The best way to find him is on Facebook, of course, and Instagram. Just search for Teach McNeil. So here's something you may not know. AeroStitch is factory direct. Now, I guess you usually think of factory direct, you know, when you're dealing with, I don't know, sales or things like that. It's something special. You you go to the factory and you buy from there. But AeroStitch is always factory direct. They don't sell through retailers. They sell just from them. And the good thing about that is when you are buying an AeroStitch riding suit, you're dealing with the people who make the suit. You're dealing with the people who design the suit. You're dealing with the people that have been doing it since 1983. That's a long time. They've been designing and making riding suits and dealing with it every day. And the people at AeroStitch are riders themselves. And I think that's one of the, the great things about it is that you're dealing with people who have a vested interest in the sport. They're not just there, you know, getting their paycheck. They actually enjoy riding and they're enthusiasts themselves. 
www.arrowstitch.com forward slash ARR. And of course, use that forward slash ARR because that does two things. One, it lets them know you heard them here on Adventure Rider Radio. And two, it's going to get you 10% off your next order or if you're an existing customer, free shipping in the U.S., That's fantastic. So drop by their website and do yourself a favor. They've got their brand new catalog out now for this year. Grab the catalog. I I prefer the paper version, but you can download it for free. I think the paper version costs you $5 if you're not buying anything, and then they take that off your your, your first order. But you won't go wrong because they've got all kinds of things in there. They've got the things they make, but they also sell a bunch of other riding-related things. And there'll probably be a bunch of surprises in there that you didn't even know existed. Aerostitch.com forward slash ARR and let them know you heard them here on Adventure Rider Radio. Are you one of those people that have um, sawed the handles of your toothbrushes to reduce weight? People come up with all different ideas of how they can reduce weight for their motorcycle. I mean, some people go to aluminum components and where it was steel before. Everything you can do to reduce your weight. Well, let me tell you something. Giant loop luggage is 30 pounds lighter than your typical hard luggage. 30 pounds. Think about that. That is a huge chunk of weight. It's better positioned for the rider. It's better positioned weight distribution, like closer to the motorcycle center. And these are just some of the things about Giant Loop Luggage that makes them great. The other thing is, of course, they're well known for extremely durable waterproof luggage. That's that's their big thing. And they've developed a, a well-deserved reputation for this, for anyone who's ridden with their luggage. You can drop by their website, and they even have the riders that they sponsor with their luggage that ride around the world and use these things. I ran into a, a couple that were using them. They had been down to South America and back and they've been beaten thoroughly, and they really look sort of new still. I mean, they were dirty and weathered, you could see that, but still in perfect working condition. That's what Giant Loop's for, known for. GiantLoopMoto.com, and make sure you use the promo code ARR. It'll get you free shipping in the U.S., but do us a favor here at Adventure Rider Radio. Anytime you're dealing with Giant Loop or any of the companies that you hear on this show, let them know you heard them here on Adventure Rider Radio. Well, now we're going to tackle another episode of Rider Skills, where we try and teach ourselves better skills through audio. And Brett Tax today is going to talk to us about using our vision to make us better riders. Now, you've probably had it happen before. You know where you're riding along on the trail and you you look at a rock up ahead, you stare at it, and you think, boy, I do not want to hit that. And what do you do? You ride right into it. So our vision is, is totally connected to how we ride and where we ride, for that matter. I'm, I'm sure you remember from learning to ride a car, if you've, you've done any sort of advanced driving, you learn that you've got to look where you want to go. Well, that's really important for motorcycles as well. And today on our Rider Skills segment, Brett Tax is going to give us some instructions on using our vision to become better riders. Brett, welcome back to Adventure Rider Radio. Well, happy to be back. So what are we going to talk about today? Uh, you know, we're going to talk about vision today. Uh, protecting our vision, using our vision, and having strategies for vision. It's something that isn't commonly thought of when we think of adventure riding. So when you talk about vision, you're not talking about whether we need glasses or not. You're talking about how we use our vision? Well, obviously, if we need glasses, that's a big deal. If we can't see through our shield, that that makes it that can make a difference. But okay, so that's something completely different. Yeah, I'm actually talking about strategies of, of changing how we actually look at things. 
And our vision is actually not as straightforward as a lot of people think as it is. Okay, so what do you mean when you say not as straightforward? Well, m- normally we, we just kind of think, well, I look out and I see things and that's that's it. You know, we're, we're kind of done. And you know, whether you take training, they're like, hey, look down the trail or look at obstacles or look away from things. But we don't really think about kind of the step beyond that, that our vision isn't that simple. And we can actually develop our vision to work differently based on how we work, um, just sort of the way our, our eyes are designed or how they've evolved. And it can really make a big difference, both for riding, for controlling fear, because that's actually one of our greatest limitations as a rider is just fear of falling down or fear of speed or fear of leaning. And uh, and also situational awareness, because you know, you know, as adventure riders, we're not just riders, but when we're off the bike or if we're in a, a city that we're unfamiliar with or a foreign country, then we really need to be aware of what's going around us. And we can change the way we use our vision to become much more aware of that and to pick up on more details. Okay, so definitely unconventional thinking. And I think most people, when they're listening to this right now, they're probably going to say, oh, well, what you're talking about is what I'm focusing on. Exactly. And that's what we usually think of. And and I'm going to refer to that as vision, as our focal vision. Did you say you refer to it as target vision? Yeah, I work a lot with the military, uh, with the school, and we train a lot. So we a lot of the terms I use help them. So we talk about target vision, off-target vision, range vision, where we're trying to, to look at a full area because we tie into the, the training they've used for staying alive in combat situations. And so we repurpose that into their riding skills. And these are things that as civilians we can also do. Okay, so where do we start using our target vision or any vision to uh, help us with adventure riding? or riding in the street for that matter? Well, I'm going to start off with just defining what that target vision is. Our focus vision is only about three to six degrees, depending which reference and book you're looking at. But it's around three to six degrees, and that's all it is. And this is a lot of times why when we look at photographs, the photographs that have a very crisp thing that it's looking at, whether it's a flower, a person, whatever, where the rest of it kind of becomes a little bit blurred, are very appealing to our eyes because that's actually how we normally see things. So as you look around the room, what you'll realize is when you focus on one thing across the room, whether it's a light or something else, that's very clear. But the things around it aren't necessarily so clear. They're a little bit hazy. And we really don't pay attention to that. And so our target vision is that focus point. So is that vision like is in the optical parts of our eye that's focusing like that? Or is that our mind sort of concentrating in that one spot? It's absolutely the way our vision works. We only have three to five degrees of, of actual focus. And, and, of course, that's during daytime because our, our eyes are actually designed. We have a daytime design and a nighttime design. And people have heard of cones and rods and cones are the daytime vision. And that gives us color. That gives us detail. gives us depth of field. And that's what allows that six, uh, 360 degree focus. And rods are night vision. And rods are more about edge detection and movement. And we actually have a blind spot right in the middle of our eyes in the evening where the rods normally, or the, I'm sorry, the cones normally have that focus during the day. Okay. So is there any way we can get around this? Is there some way or method that we can use to make our vision wider than what it is normally? There absolutely there is. So here's the concept and, and we can all do this. It's very easy to develop on your own. And there's, there are other two stages of vision are called parafulvial and peripheral. And most people are familiar with peripheral vision. That's running out to about 90 degrees to our left or right, um, give or take, depending on the rider. And parafulvial is around 45 to 60 degrees in front of us. So if we hold our arms out about a 45 degree 
Um, that's our parafolvial. And the amount of detail you get changes depending on what part of the vision it's going into. And so we can actually learn to relax our eyes, relax the focus point. And what you'll find is as you relax the focus and you start concentrating on the parafolvial or the peripheral vision or what we refer to as range vision, you actually gain a wider range of information. You can pick up both left and right. Okay, well, th this is actually a, a technique that I learned many years ago for use in the outdoors, for being more observant for wildlife and things that are going on around you while you're in the outdoors. But how can we take that skill and use it to our advantage as motorcyclists? So adventure riders uh, have a tendency to focus on the things that we are fearful of. And so we look down at the log or the rock or the gravel or the pothole or the vehicle coming at us, and we have a tendency to focus on that. And when we see it, as soon as we not just look at it, but we focus on it, we end up with more of a tunnel vision. When we use the target vision with concentration, our, our parafolvial and our peripheral vision narrow considerably. And the problem is, is that that's where we end up going. We, you know, we've all heard, you go where you look, and that's actually very true, which is why in, in some of our other talks, I've talked about finding these, these different points on the trail and focusing where you can go, not where you can't go. Don't look at what you don't want to hit. And so as we open up this vision, it allows us to keep our eyes pointed the direction where we want to keep picking up detail, but to relax our vision enough to start picking up those secondary items such as changes in color, changes in shading, things that may become issues or things that we may be more concerned about. But instead of just scanning one thing at a time, we're able to pick it all up at the same time. So probably we've all experienced this before. You know, you're riding along, you spot something like a rock, you know, a particular rock on the trail, and you think, I do not want to hit that rock. I definitely don't want to hit that rock. And you look at it, and the next thing you know, you find yourself riding exactly over that rock. You couldn't have hit it better if you'd aimed for it. So the question is, how do we stop ourselves from doing it? Well, we have to train ourselves. See, as we're, we're instinctively designed to focus on things that are hazards. So if you think about a survival situation, you brought up living out in the, the woods or going in the back area where you may have concern about things. During the day, we're, we're hunters. You know, we're predators. We, we look for things to eat, whether we're hunting a berry or hunting a rabbit. We're, we're looking for it. And once we see it, we lock onto it and we focus on it. And that helps us keep track of it, and we go with it. But we're really not worried about things around us. In fact, you can see this if you watch some of the National Geographic or Animal Planet or whatever these are. When you see a predator like a cat, a big cat in, uh, in Africa, and they'll pick out their prey, what they want. And they'll actually leap over other potential prey to get the one they're focused on. Everything else around them just disappears, and that's what they focus on. Um, and we do that as riders. So when we see a hazard because we think of that, because it, the, the alternative to that is something's hunting us. We don't want to lose track of where it's at. So again, we hold that focus. So we're kind of trained. Our, our instinct is to find that and lock onto it. So you really have to train to get away from it. Uh, we teach a concept called home position. Uh, the way this works is our eyes actually center and they always fall back to center in the middle of the eye. So if we were looking out the window and, and you look hard to the left with your eyes, but you don't move your head or you look hard to the right using just your eyes, you'll notice it's kind of fatiguing and you don't really have as much detail. You know, so the detail is always in that center position. But every time you relax, the eyes kind of come back to that middle position. We call that home. So as a rider, the first thing we want to do is train to keep our eyes in a home position. So we take our head, 
our chin, our nose, and our eye sockets, and we point them to the direction we want to go. So as a rider, we're looking down the road or down the trail at the furthest point that we can absolutely see. So the entry to the next corner or to the end of the road onto the horizon, that's where our home position is. But while we're doing that, we're able to relax our eyes and use this perifolvial and this peripheral vision, this range vision, so that we keep our eyes in that place and we open up the vision so we can see both left and right and what's below us. So anything that's coming into our path of travel or anything that's on the trail, such as um, a dip in the, the trail or a log, we can pick up that shape, we can pick up that color change. Now, while maintaining home position, you can momentarily drop your eyes to identify, is this something I really care about? Is this a rock, uh, a rock I have to go around or is this not something I, I really care about and I can go over it very easily? And by doing that, as soon as we relax our eyes, they come back to that home position. So we use our range vision to get more information what's going on, and then we can change the focus just to identify when we need it, threat or no threat. So I picture this a lot like making a corner on the street. You know, you lean to your corner and you're looking as far around the corner as you can, keeping your, your head level. So for, for us on adventure bikes, what's the best position for us to keep our heads in? Well, and for most of us, we're not leaning as far over as like some of these GP racers. So generally, it's a level level on the horizon because if you keep your eyes level, you're, you're much better sense of balance that way. But it's just like the street. You're just looking as far through. And, and we think about looking through the corner as far as you can go. But on the street, what we end up doing is looking beyond the corner. So we start looking for things beyond the horizon to go, is there a difference in – um, topographical or overlapping contours so that you can see greater distance. Do the trees fall off in the distance? If they're directly in front of the road, I know it goes left or right. If they taper down in size, if they appear to be large on the left and they taper down behind, the trees are sharp right on the, uh, very tall on the right, it'll actually make an arrow in the sky right where those trees taper down. Well, as the trees go further in the distance, they appear smaller or shorter. And so it actually tells you the road's turning right. So we think about, yeah, I'm looking at the crest of the road. And the truth is we, our home position should be beyond that. We're actually looking to the treetops to, to the highest point where we get the greatest information. Now, at lower speeds, it comes in some. So if we're going 10 miles an hour, we're not looking you know, off to, to Venus. But certainly if, we're, if we take to the road, then we can be looking miles down the road, literally. And, and that's where we go. And so I, and I mentioned this whole fear thing and this, this – ability to open our vision to allow our eyes to relax and, and allow this blurry vision, this range vision, it actually changes our sense of speed and lean and stability. So on the street, usually it's speed and lean that gets us in trouble. And that's what that's what gets riders fearful uh, when they go through the corner. It's usually not because they're leaning too far and they're going to fall over. It's usually because they think they're leaning over and they feel like they're going too fast. And this is a very easy phenomenon to think about. If you're Going down the freeway and you look at the mountain in the distance, it looks like it's not moving. But if you look directly to your left or right and try to count fence posts, they're going so fast uh, by so fast that they're blurry. And so the farther out you look, the more, the more information you have and the more time you have to process it, which means that the whole process slows down. So it doesn't feel like you're going as fast. And the same thing happens in the dirt. You've got all of these different terrain features that are happening, all these well, I see these roots, these rocks, these mud ruts, the sand, the water crossings. And when people are looking down low, it comes at them so fast that they can't process the information and they end up reacting to everything. And what they should be doing is keeping all the way up on the horizon so they can plan for it. 
because it allows them to go, okay, that's what's happening. And they process it at a much more uh, digestible rate of information. And, and the other thing we run into is uh, you talked about, um, you know, not just a change of vision, you know, when we need glasses, as we age, obviously our, our vision changes and we can't see as much detail and we can't judge distance as far. The other thing we have as adventure riders is very often we end up with very, uh, very dusty conditions or very muddy or, and our, our eyewear itself can get dusty and dirty and can give us that same effect. So even if we have perfect vision, we don't just because we can't see through the stuff that we're wearing, you know, whether it's glasses, goggles, sunglasses, you know, a shield on the helmet. And, uh, and again, keeping this up and, and getting as much information and then slowing down based on how much it's there, it, it makes a big difference. But this is a really neat um, activity that they can, anybody that's listening can do. And if they just stand in the room and they, they pick a focal point on the far side of the room and without changing their eyes, they can start doing things like counting how many lights are in the room, how many chairs are in the room, uh, what color and what shape the flooring is underneath them, but without changing their eyes. And this actually allows them to develop the use of this vision and become comfortable with it blurred in front of them because it's not something people are comfortable with. So are there times when the target vision actually helps us? Absolutely. So uh, knowing that we, we go where we look, often if you know you're in a situation and you need to get your bike to a different portion of the trail. I, I was just out riding in, uh, in Spokane when I was still back on the West Coast and I was in a really sandy area in the I was on the tiger and I'm going up the edge of this cliff and the, the bike's kind of doing this crab walk thing, you know, as I'm, I'm on the edge of it. Cause it's really soft down in the lower portion. It's an ORV area and my front wheels up on the hard area and the bike's crawling across. And I'm realizing as I look in front of me, I realize I can't keep crab walking across this road. I've got to get down and I see this rut. And when I look at the rut, I figure I can put my front tire in it. And as soon as I put my front tire in, it, it'll put it the direction I need it to go. But I can't get to the rut because I have all this stuff going on. So I actually turned my vision and focused and used that target vision to look right down exactly where I wanted my tire to go. And sure enough, that's exactly where my bike went. And once it was in that spot or once it was almost in that spot, I was able to pick my eyes up and then look up at the top of the hill in the center of this V rut I was riding so that I would actually continue going on. Because if I held my eyes down the whole time, of course – then, then we don't know where we're going and, and we have no control. So you can use it to target. Uh, we had talked about using these, these rocks and roots where you get this V formation that allow us to have solid traction. And the same thing, we can, we can target those with our eyes to get there. And once we're going up on them, we pick our eyes up to continue the rest of the path. Okay, so on our bikes, how do we get our head into the correct home position? Well, obviously pointed straight ahead, keep our eyes and our, our whole body focused in that direction, uh, meaning that our we're always kind of square the direction we're running. So if we turn, we kind of turn our body the direction we turn, whether it's on the road or on the trail, and we, we keep our head in that home position and so do it with our eyes. But I think the, the best way to answer this is you want to get the high ground. If you're going to look, use your home position and look out, you also want to get the furthest distance you can. And we've talked about all of the advantage, all the tremendous advantages we have of standing up on a motorcycle. You know, the way it makes it light underneath it, the way it allows us to use shock absorbers and the way we have better control. But the other thing it does for us is it gives us that high ground. When I stand up, I'm not looking through that dirty shield that's on my bike. When I stand up, I'm higher on the bike and I can see farther out. 
And that can be a huge difference, especially if you're cresting any kind of a hill or any kind of a, an area where there's a drop-off on the backside. You get the information a whole lot sooner. There's one other thing to keep in mind with all of this. And, and you brought up something uh, as we come into this and go, hey, you know, so we're not talking about age. And, and certainly we need to be aware of that. But, you know, the equipment we pick can make a big difference on how well we can see and how we use this vision as well. And, you know, we talked about adventure helmets. And there's been a lot of questions about whether I should just have a street helmet or just have an adventure helmet. You know, adventure helmets really do have some advantages for, for guys that are riding off-road. I think sometimes the adventure helmet is, is um, misunderstood because it's a lot of people who refer to it as a style, thinking that maybe it's just all about having that, uh, you know, the peak and the cool look to it. But um, there are some reasons for this. There are some practical reasons, and, and there are certainly, like anything in the industry, there are some things that are more fashion-focused, and then there are some helmets that are very purposefully built. And so some of the things that crossed over in these adventure helmets from the dirt world really do have an advantage for us. They really do. Okay, let's talk about some of those things. So uh, the visor. Let's start with the most obvious thing that we see on those. The visor really can make a difference. And as you ride, uh, most of us or many of us ride with just the visor on the shield itself. And one of the disadvantages of doing this is when we're in dusty conditions, it collects dust on the outside and on the inside of the visor. And that doubles up how much debris is in between us and the things we're trying to see. Well, when the sun hits this, it reflects on it. And if we can tilt that visor down just slightly, that, you know, the, like the baseball cap type visor, and shade the shield itself, it doesn't reflect off all these small particles and it clears our vision up quite a bit. Okay. Well, one of the other things, um, and you and I have talked a bit about this before, but one of the more obvious things is the, the field of view. You have a, a lot bigger eye hole in an adventure bike helmet than you do in a street helmet, and it makes it a lot easier to see while you're riding. And it is. It's a it's wild division and right, but also towards the bottom. They they seem to just not be as closed. And that helps us out because we are picking up things underneath us. And on the street, you know, if it's underneath you, it's way too late. But in the dirt when we're riding slow, sometimes things can come up that are well, it's just let's just say it's not the street. So yeah, having that greater greater opening is a benefit. Most of those are actually so we can wear goggles though. Uh, you can pop off the original shield and wear goggles so that if you are in those really dusty conditions, really nasty conditions, you can really protect your eyes. Because if you're getting dust inside your shield, that also means you're getting in your eyes. And allergens and sand and dirt and all of that, that all affects your vision. And why are the goggles better than the visor? Well, as I mentioned, the visor collects dust both inside and outside. And also, dust can still pull into the helmet and get into your eyes. So the goggles allow you to have really the best protection possible. And they will have a little bit of, they will take a little bit of the peripheral away, but they just offer the absolute best protection, period. Because they're sealed against your face. Exactly, exactly. And that was Brett Tax from PSSOR, or Puget Sound Safety Off-Road. And you can find out more about Brett and what he does as far as uh, his training courses and camps that he puts on at PSSOR.com. And you can train with Brett uh, or with one of Brett's associates by signing up for one of their uh, their ADV training camps. They've got training camps running uh, in June. I think you've missed the all. Oh, no, you've still got a little while. You can get into June 19th to 22nd. They've got July 17th to 20th and then August 21st to 24th. 
They've even got some other camps that are coming up that they haven't marked on their website. It's coming soon. But get a hold of them. If you're interested in learning how to ride, you can hear the way Brett teaches. He is an excellent teacher, and they, they have these fantastic courses that will make you a better rider. And, of course, when you're a better rider, you're more confident no matter where you go, whether you're close to home, but especially if you're planning on going on a trip for a, you know a couple of weeks or, or however long, you, with better riding skills, you're, just, you're not only more confident, but you're a safer rider as well. So, I mean, I, I think it's really important that we always try and build those skills. So get a hold of Puget Sound Safety Off-Road and, and see if you can sign up for one of Brett's tours, pssor.com. And of course, anytime you're dealing with them, same as everybody else, let them know you heard them here on Adventure Rider Radio. This episode is brought to you in part by Max BMW Motorcycles, serving adventure riders since 2002. 45,000 parts and accessories available online and ready to ship to your door at maxbmw.com. And you can sign up for their e-rider newsletter too. It's free. That's maxbmw.com. And Best Rest Products, home of Cycle Pump Tire Inflator, Tire and Bead Breaker, Easy Air Tire Gauge, and other adventure motorcycle gear. You know, whether you're on the road or off the road, you'll need a compact and reliable tire inflation method. The Cycle Pump runs right off your bike's electrical system and will inflate a flat tire in less than three minutes. Made in the USA, and get this, it comes with a lifetime warranty. It's the pump we use here at Adventure Rider Radio. Visit them at CyclePump.com. That's CyclePump.com. Green Chili Adventure Gear offers American-made, heavy-duty, innovative luggage systems for all types of motorcycles, tested in extreme weather and terrain to withstand the abuse of adventure riding. Green Chili Adventure Gear is also the exclusive USA distributor for Outback Motor Tech, a Canadian company that specializes in high-quality protection for motorcycles. Visit them at www.greenchiliadv.com, greenchiliadv.com. Well, that about wraps up another episode of Adventure Rider Radio, and we sure hope you enjoyed listening to it as much as we did making it. I want to give a special thanks to our co-producer, Elizabeth Martin, and you as a listener for dropping by and listening. And also, all the people who come to the website and give us their comments and suggestions for shows, and the, the people who drop by Facebook and, and like it on Facebook and, and drop drop comments by, it's just great to get that feedback. It really is. It's really nice to know that you know, you're enjoying it, and you have, and you have input for the show. It's great. And if you haven't already heard, we have another show out called ARR Raw, or Adventure Rider Radio Raw, Roundtable Discussions. There's a group of us that are on there once a month. You have to subscribe separately. Drop by our website, www.adventureriderradio.com, and click on the Raw button. It'll take you to that show. You can subscribe separately to it. You can find it on iTunes and everywhere else on the internet as well. It's going over great. We're getting tons of great feedback. It's a lot of fun to do because we've got Sam Manicom on there. We've got Grant Johnson from Horizons Unlimited, Shirley Hardy Ricks, Brian Ricks, and usually a guest or two on there as well. And we talk about all types of things to do with motorcycle and travel. It is a lot of fun, unscripted. You'll like it, I think. Drop by there. And if you like what we're doing here and you'd like to keep the show coming to you free, consider dropping by our website and clicking on the donation button. Send us a little something to help keep the wheels rolling here. We've made the show on a model of advertising mixed with donations. It's a lot of work to put it together. We absolutely love doing it, but we could certainly use your help with it. So... 
if you'd like, drop by the website, click on the donate button, and send us your comments and show suggestions as well. You can do it on Facebook as well. You can drop by there and you can uh, send us your, your suggestions or comments there. Get out there and ride your bike. No excuses now. My name is Jim Martin, and this is Adventure Rider Radio.